Hello, welcome to Retail in Focus. I'm Alex Leonard, Senior Reporter at Retail Systems. Today, we're going to be talking about fast fashion, an intrinsic part of modern day society. While the clothes we buy are often affordable, the cost of rising demand, endless choice, and a constant turnover of new styles is high. The environmental impact of our shopping habits is alarming. In the UK, roughly nine and a half thousand garments are dumped every five minutes. The social consequences of limitless access to cheap garments are just as concerning. Today, we're lucky enough to have fashion and culture journalist and best-selling author Dana Thomas on the podcast. Dana began her career writing for the style section of the Washington Post, has served as cultural and fashion correspondent for Newsweek in Paris, is a regular contributor to the New York Times, and has written three books, including Fashionopolis, which is what we're talking about today. The book takes a detailed and comprehensive look at the fashion industry, exploring how we got to a place where more than 100 billion tonnes worth of garments are made every year. Fashionopolis also serves as a blueprint for a more sustainable future. So a warm welcome, Dana. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. First of all, I just want to congratulate you on the book and say that um, I really enjoyed it. I loved how detailed it was. It was full of so many different stories. Of course, many of those were quite hard hitting. So it was also a very confronting read as well. Really excellent book. So let's just jump into the first question. Obviously, you really delved into the industry when writing this book, visiting everywhere from the US to Asia and beyond and, and actually speaking face to face with many different people. Some of those who had faced some real tragedy as a result of fast fashion and then others that perhaps had some more optimistic answers. So how long did it actually take you to write and research the book? And, and how did you find the whole experience? Well, it took me officially two and a half years to write and research the book. But I've been thinking about it and collecting thread on it and doing other sorts of reporting that eventually wound up in there for probably a decade. Um, you know, I've been working on the fashion beat now for gosh, 30 years. And, uh, and so I'm always gathering string, as we say, and, 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 and these things sort of plant seeds that I then noodle for a while until it, it grows into a book. My second book, Gods and Kings, The Rise and Fall of Alexander McQueen and John Galliano, you know, when it came out in 2015, it included interviews I'd done with John Galliano as far long ago as 1994. So, you know, I kind of work on them all along the way. But from the moment I got the contract and sat down and said, right, how are we going to shape what we have and what we need and then go out and get what we need and write this book, it was two and a half years. Wow, that's a long time. And it definitely felt like you'd pulled from lots of eras and obviously had done a lot of research on it and it had that very comprehensive view of the industry. So what were some of the most shocking or alarming things found out about fashion and the supply chain when writing the book? And, and did anything actually shock you? Because obviously, you know, you've been in the industry a long time, but was there stuff that uh, surprised you? Absolutely. I've been covering this industry, like I said, for about 30 years. And, you know, I've written about and known about sweatshops. But I didn't, and I'd even visited some a pretty terrible counterfeit factory for counterfeit handbags in China when I was working on my first book deluxe that was run it was staffed by children but nothing prepared me for the sweatshop I visited in 
Bangladesh. I, it was just remarkable how awful and grim and filthy and dangerous it was and how the people who worked there looked like like the light had been turned off inside them they were just so downtrodden and like their soul had been extinguished and they were thin and they were tired and they worked barefoot um and stood on pieces of cardboard because there's you know this idea that you might steal something and shove it in your shoes so you have to leave your shoes at the door and work barefoot all day and uh it was just it was a it was a crazy experience and i was told that this was not one of the worst you know this was a relatively decent sweatshop that there were far worse ones just down the street um you know, it's interesting how you said I, it was a, it's a global view, the book of the industry. What I try to do is that I use fashion to talk about bigger ideas because mm -hmm. we all get dressed up in the morning and we, and we understand clothes. If I describe how blue jeans are made, you go, oh, okay, I get it because you see what blue jeans are and you wear them and you know them versus, you know, sort of widgets or some sort of, you know, technological this and that. And it touches all of us. So my first book was about, you know, basically globalism and the impact of globalization on, on fashion, but also on commerce in general and on society, but on, on commerce. The second one was about how globalization impacted the creative side and really just strung out the, the artists and the creators in, in, in any business. I could have easily written, I wrote this book about Alexander McQueen and John Galliano gods and kings but it could have been about Whitney Houston you know it could have been about Prince it could have been about River Phoenix it could have been about, you know like a lot of different areas that were this the creative side of of a global industry suffers because of the demands of the global industry and they just can't keep up because they're creatives they're not business people and uh and this third book is about the impact of globalization on humanity and the planet meaning you know how it really touches humans on every level and and its impact on the environment and how devastating it is again i could have been talking about any industry but i felt that fashion is far more approachable and understandable way to to see this impact and what surprised me was how enormous the impact is on on both society and the planet and how that goes hand in hand you will never be able to solve the climate change problem until you solve poverty. Yep, absolutely. The 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 great division of wealth right now, uh, you know, the as we talk about the one percent, you know, the people who like the Jeff Bezos of the world, the Bernard Arnault of who owns LVMH of the world, you know, he's number two, the richest, second richest man in the world right now, second richest person. Only $4 billion less than Jeff, Jeff Bezos, the luxury group LVMH owner, Bernard Arnault, $183 billion as of yesterday. I looked it up. And yet the people who make the clothes for these companies are paid in Bangladesh $95 a month. And until we solve that, and until people stop hoarding money and squeezing the planet to make more money, you know, pollution is the cheapest way to go to do business. 
And then, and the people who are making the money off that cutting corners and pollution are becoming wildly, wildly wealthy and then hoarding their money as opposed to reinvesting it into society, humanity, and the planet. So until we solve that poverty issue, we will not be able to solve the environment issue, the planet issue. It just, they, they go hand in hand. Absolutely. Yeah, you made some very interesting, poignant points there. And I certainly was shocked when when reading the book. But actually, I imagine, you know, seeing it in person would have been would have been quite horrific. And also with the book, I think where the, 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 the history and the scope of the industry is presented so comprehensively, that that in itself, you know, is quite alarming when you when you have all of the, the facts and the history there in front of you. So yeah, I definitely gasped a lot when I was uh, reading the book. What's amazing is that, you know, basically the issues we have today are the same issues we had 150 years ago in the garment industry when Charles Dickens was writing Oliver Twist, kids working in the factories in Cottonopolis in Manchester. Same issues. And they were resolved for much of the 20th century when government stepped in and imposed regulations and unions imposed regulations and really looked after the workers and workers earned a really good living and they got retirement benefits and they got maternity leave and they got, and they worked in clean, safe factories. And, you know, you could work at a garment factory in the United States or the United Kingdom and, or in France or in Italy. And, you know, you lived a solid middle-class life with a two car garage and your kids went to a perfectly decent public school and you had, you know, a good life. You weren't, getting paid half of a living wage, which is what 98% of garment workers today earn. So what happened was that globalization arrived in the 1990s at the same time that China was opening and the internet was coming into being. And all those jobs moved offshore and we had trade trade deals in the US, it was NAFTA and CAFTA, which is the, the Central American version of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And there was a Caribbean free trade agreement and there was a, you know, and then there's other trade agreements with Asia and, you know, Europe had the same thing. And those jobs moved offshore to countries where there was no regulation for safety, for employment, for the environment and pollution. And, and the businesses, the fashion businesses got out of the business of making clothes. They just design clothes, fashion brands. They don't really make clothes. Mm-hmm. Most of those jobs are contracted to in to um, independent factories, independent contractors, and then they subcontract, and then they subcontract, and so you lose track of where your clothes are made. If you ask most designers where your clothes are made, they will tell you, "I have no idea," and they don't. When yeah. the, one of the most amazing, you said one, what was surprising me in my research, one of the most amazing moments I came across was when uh, ABC News cornered Tommy Hilfiger backstage after his show in New York Fashion Week and asked him about a factory in Bangladesh that produces clothes that went up in flames and 100 people died. He said, I had no idea we were making clothes in Bangladesh. We will never make clothes in Bangladesh again. Well, the wow. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's good. We're going to have to dial that back. So uh, they sat down for a proper interview and said, well, of course, we're going to continue to make clothes in Bangladesh because they had contracts they had to maintain. And because yeah. they're part of a big corporate group and the big corporate group 
wants them to maintain those contracts because the cheaper they pay to have those clothes made, the more profits they make, the more money the shareholders in that big public group get. And it's all just driven from greed. But Tommy Milfiger was shocked to learn that his clothes were made in Bangladesh. He was shocked to learn that the factory had gone up in flames. And he swore that this would never happen again. Of course, it, it's still happening. His clothes are still yeah, made. Absolutely. And actually, in the book as well, you, you mention, though, uh, many examples of initiatives and practices where brands or suppliers are actively aiming for sustainable processes. So uh, could you talk a bit about some of those and and, and do you think those are applicable to some of these bigger fashion retail brands, perhaps like, you know, Tommy Hilfiger? Yes and no. Um, one of the great trailblazers in this in this area is Stella McCartney, the daughter of Paul McCartney of the Beatles. And Stella's been a fashion designer now for about 25 years. And when she and since day one, she has always said, I will never use fur and I will never use leather. She was raised by Paul and Linda McCartney as her siblings to be a vegetarian and to believe in animal rights and, hum and, and humane treatment of animals. So she said from very beginning of her career, I'm not using leather and I'm not using fur. Well, this was in the late 1990s, um, kind of problematic because that's where all the fashion businesses made all their money was in what we call leather goods, mm -hmm. handbags and shoes. Massive, massive um, markup, you know, 15, 20, 25 times the cost to make it, you know, you sell it for, you make it for a hundred, you sell it for 2,500, you know, like massive markup. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's also one of the easiest things to sell because you don't have to worry about um, size issues or people have, you know, a woman going, I feel so fat today. I can't go out shopping, but you can always go buy a handbag. Right. And it's not that expensive. expensive. It's an entry level. It can't small leather goods can be an entry level product as they call it entry level you know accessible product wallets keychains things like mm -hmm. that but she said no leather so she worked it out for a while with imitation leathers but then was hit hard by the leather industry for saying you know but that's more polluting than the leather industry which is not true and um but because of her stance in that area it opened doors for her in other ways too so she said well if we can manage to make the business and she turned a profit a year before schedule by not using leather and fur so she said look it, you i proved that you can run a very sustainable business without polluting or without using leather and without using fur so she um then moved into other areas and she just said you know like for example if luxury fashion is supposed to be about exclusivity and only one percent of the cotton today is organic then shouldn't we only be sourcing organic cotton which is a far superior product to conventional mm -hmm. cotton so she started using uh, organic cotton and then she said she found out that one of the most important polluting items was called is pvc which is short for a really long word i cannot pronounce it, it has <laughs> 75 letters right. in it. and a lot of z's and y's but um PVC is the coating on like vinyl. Mm -hmm. PVC is what's used to coat a Louis Vuitton bag. You know, um, the, 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 the canvas bags. PVC is what's used to make, uh, umbre you know, the coating on umbrellas and on trenches that are kind of plastified. The plastified mm -hmm. coating on things. Mm -hmm. It's also used for the filler in the rim of a handbag, you know, the little tubing. 
And it's used in bazillions of things like, you know, that you have every day in your life. But in fashion, these are big words. And it's used for sequins. So she said, I can't use, she said, you know, there's like thousands and thousands and thousands of sequins I'd love to use, but only three of them don't have PVC in them. So I am down to using three sequins, but because she started using those three sequins that gave a boost to the business that produces non PVC sequins. And now there's many, many more and it's a whole movement and PVC. And she managed to get PVC out of her company in a year or two. So you know, each step along the way, she has opened doors. And when she embraced something, then the industry would get on board and see that she could do it. And the more people who did it, then the price would go down and then there would be more availability. And then, you know, it was a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. So she's since then been championing, championing um, startups doing really inventive and creative ways to uh, go forward in a cleaner production system mostly in what we call circularity. And circularity is exactly as it sounds. We've been consuming since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution in a linear manner, that something is designed, made, we buy it, we use it, we throw it away. We buy a new thing. They design something new, we use it, we get rid of it, we throw it away. You know, it dies, whatever it is. Whether it's a new car, it's a new sweater, it's a new washing machine, it's, you know, we buy it, we use it, we throw it away. Yeah. And away is what? Away is no, you know, it goes somewhere, but we just sort of generally say away. Well, yeah. landfill so, probably. <laughs> landfill mostly. And not, like more than 90% of our clothes land up in landfill. So she has been pushed behind this for, this force to turn it into a circular model where we buy it, we use it, it goes back into the system, gets recycled or regenerated and gets reused again. There's a company in Italy that's been doing this with nylon for a long time called Econeal. She has been working with um, other companies that are doing this with polyester where, and, and with cotton, where they take like your old cotton jeans, they break it down to the molecular level, they regenerate it into virgin cotton, they reweave it, and they turn it back into fabric and use it all over again. Old cotton t-shirts, old cotton towels, old cotton anything, same with polyester. So she's behind some of these startups. If she's not supporting them financially, she's certainly cheerleading for them. Some, A lot of them she sources from, like Evernew in Seattle, which is the cotton regeneration company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's lots of others. And then she's also working with companies that are, and supporting companies that are growing uh, animal-like materials in laboratories, there's a company out in uh, Silicon Valley in the Bay Area of San Francisco that's growing silk in laboratories. And silk for Stella was a problem because to make silk, you have to kill the silk is made from a cocoon of a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. And to get the thread from the cocoon, you have to kill the ca- caterpillar. Well, that was completely against her DNA, you know, the way she was raised. Like, we don't kill animals, especially for, for clothes, for vanity. Yeah. So, the growing silk in a laboratory solves that issue. And she has already had some pieces on exhibit at the MoMA in New York and at the V&A made of the silk. And she's introducing it into her supply chain. And also leather made out of mushroom root systems, which she's introducing very soon into the supply chain. And, um, and that's leather that's grown in a laboratory. So there's really cool, she's a trailblazer and she's pushing, she's like this, force pushing the industry to be a cleaner more 
environmentally sound business. And with the climate agreement of rules of COP21, set for 2050 of having net zero carbon, the industry really needs to get on board and, and adopt things fast. You know, yeah. President Joe Biden announced in April that uh, the U.S. is going to, when he wants the U.S. to cut all carbon emissions by half by 2030. Now, that's going to force companies like Tommy Hilfiger to, to readjust the way they do things. So, you know, policy is pushing, and then you have a few trailblazers like Stella, and then the, and then the startups that she supports really changing the business. Yeah, definitely. But it seems like there are definitely some great initiatives out there. And I actually went into Stella McCartney uh, in London the weekend because I was quite interested to see some of the products and obviously some of the materials mimicking suede and leather. And, and you know what, they look like the real thing. And, and it's just quite interesting to see how that can be recreated uh, with non-animal materials. So yeah, it was great to to see that in person. Of course, I can't afford any of it, but you know, it's nice to look at. <laughs> well, one of the things that she also says, which I thought was one of the most important things she said at any time we've talked over about these different issues is, if you can't afford it on the, fir- the first time around, buy it on the sale, buy it on the sale of the sale, buy it on resale, like the Real Real or Vestiaire Collective or at a local charity shop. Yeah. Or- or rent it, especially if it's a special occasion outfit mm. that you wear once or twice. There's a big rise in renting wedding dresses, which I think is delightful because you're passing on really good juju to the next person. Yeah, and, and you're only going to wear it once, hopefully. <laughs> and you know, we say, you know, something borrowed, something blue. So there's your something borrowed. There you uh, go. <laughs> I, I wore my mother's dress, so that dress has now been worn twice. But I'm sure my daughter doesn't want to wear it. It's <laughs> box and in, in an attic somewhere so it's like you know rent <laughs> so still you know don't spend three thousand dollars or five thousand pounds on a wedding dress go out and rent one um and if you really are eyeing Stella McCartney keep your keep an alert up on on the real real and I suppose the real kind of burning question and probably the hardest is you know, where do we go from here? What should fashion retailers be doing? Is it going to take a completely different mindset? And and is there a a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, we're really at a crossroads right now. After a year of not shopping, mm-hmm. I mean, most of the things that we bought in the last year because of COVID and being at home were beauty products, comforty, comforty, comfy, comfy things like pajamas and sweatpants and yeah. jumpers and slippers. Um, and, you know, sort of home spa. I did a lot of home spa shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so now we're coming out of it. And there's some people who are going to go back to their bad habits. And there's some people who are going to stick with their good new habits. It's a bit like coming out of Lent when you've given up something for Lent. Some people are like, great. Well, I gave that up for 40 days of good. And some people are like, I can't wait to start eating chocolate again. Yeah. So, <laughs> a bit of the same. Um, so some businesses will take advantage of We'll try to go back to normal, as it, they call it. But, of course, it's yeah. not normal. And that's one of the reasons we got into this big mess, because I personally believe we were all just running too high, like redlining a car engine. And COVID was the engine explosion that, you know, we just what we were doing as a, as a whole society was unsustainable. And what happens when you're when you're really run down, when you've been doing too much? What happens? You get sick. So uh, I feel like, you know, COVID was a thing that was born, but 
one of the reasons that it spread to this pandemic level was because we were all running too hard to slow down enough to take care of ourselves mm-hmm. and take care of the planet and take care of other people. And um, so we we have a chance to realign things. And I know that the fashion industry is working on that. They're going to produce less. They're going to stop overproduction. You know, we produce a, about roughly 100 billion items a year and we only sell 80 billion items a year. 20 billion go in the trash before they ever make it to the store floor. Well, that is very wasteful. It's terrible for the planet. Yeah, and it's pretty humanity too. I mean, it's kind of soul crushing for the people who make this stuff that just gets thrown away. So the businesses decided to be less wasteful and realize that that's, they had the time to look this year at their balance sheets and see where waste was. And, and, you know, green business is smart business and smart business is good business. So you, you waste less money, you may have more profit. Um, so they are, you know, producing less or at least not overproducing to the point that they were before. There are going to be fewer stores. There's going to be more e-shopping. There's going to be fewer collections. You know, they had ramped it up. So some coacher houses were putting out just about a collection every week of some sort, trying to keep up with fast fashion brands. And so that's all dialing back a bit. We're all going to run a little bit slower. I read in the last week or so that the travel industry thinks that we'll be back up to the standards pre-COVID for tourism in five years, I to, to which I said, oh, Lord, I hope not, because it was terrible. Yes. And living in a tourism capital of Paris, you know, it, it, it's lovely to be able to go to the Louvre again as a Parisian and not, you know, just watch the line for three hours snaking out front. So I hope that the fashion industry doesn't aim to be back to where it was before COVID, you know, in five years, because that was a bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a better, a cleaner, saner business. Maybe they want to have be making the same amount of money, but I think that they're going to, we need to move, we're moving into a thing called, you know, in, in business called the post growth model, where it's not always about more and more and more that you can grow in other ways. You can develop your business in other ways, make, you know, strategic lateral moves as opposed to just growing up, 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 and more and more and more and more. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that the fashion business is going to have to, at some point, realize that it can't just keep selling more stuff, especially stuff we don't need, and that the second richest person in the world shouldn't be someone who owns a luxury fashion company. No, shocking. <laughs> if our listeners are interested in uh, reading Fashionopolis, uh, where can they get a hold of the copy? Well, of course, you can get it on Amazon, and there you have the ebook, the paperback and the audio version featuring this voice you hear right here. And then you can get it at any bookstores. And sometimes I even go in and sign copies when I'm in town, which hasn't been in a while. But when I am, I do. At Waterstones and Hatchards and Piccadilly, Foils and Soho, Daunts and Marylebone. Any bookshop pretty much anywhere has a copy of it floating around maybe too. Get one, get one for your friends. Okay, brilliant. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thanks as well to all of our listeners. Until next time.